the 60s rolled over into the 1970s, The Who was coming off its most monumental album, Tommy, and the massive tour that followed. Tommy was a cultural milestone which left Townsend reeling and wondering what's next. For Pete Townsend, the answer was another rock opera. So in 1970, he started to piece together a new project for the band's fifth LP, Lifehouse, which was, like Tommy, a story-driven album. The initial concept stemmed from The Who's enormous growth over the past several months as the band moved further and further away from its fan base, figuratively and literally, with concerts becoming more massive and the divide between the stage and audience widened. The same kind of thing, actually, that would inspire Roger Waters to write The Wall a few years later. Pete talked about it to a British documentary in reference to his shift toward the theme albums Tommy and Lifehouse. We were into the idea that the audience was the people to serve. So I suppose I lost that audience. I lost touch with the Who's Mod audience. And I decided that what I actually had to do is I had to write something for me. And where I was at the time was I was in a very strange place. I'd, I had a couple of acid trips and hated it. Everybody else in the world was, was, was wearing funny clothes and blowing their heads off and wearing flares with uh, flowers in their hair. And I felt very out of step with it. But I was interested in the mysticism. I was interested in the spiritual side of it. So I thought maybe what I could try to do is marry the pop single with this idea of this mystical journey. And uh, that's when I started to work on Tommy. Okay, so Tommy worked great. Lifehouse, not so much. It hit some bumps along the way, not the least of which was that nobody could make sense of the damn thing. Plus, Pete has said he suffered a nervous breakdown when he couldn't assemble the piece in a cohesive way. Still, he liked several of the new songs enough that he continued to work on and refine them, even after he abandoned his original concept or rather put it on the back burner and revisited the project many times over the course of The Who's career, as well as on his own solo career. And he wasn't too thrilled about undertaking another heady rock opera after Tommy either, despite his initial feelings on the matter. So he scrapped the Lifehouse idea for the time being. Here's what their manager at the time, Chris Stamp, had to say about that. We all had a meeting a few weeks later, the band and the management and uh, Pete and I, uh, to discuss where to go from there. And the general consensus was that um, the movie script, no one really got it, no one quite understood it like Pete did, I don't think. And um, I suggested that, that we should go ahead and make a record of the songs, because the songs were, so, were just amazing. And we went into the studio in England and recorded the songs for Who's Next. That, of course, Roger Daltrey. 
The album was actually recorded in several locations. The first session for what became Who's Next was at Mick Jagger's house, Stargroves, just at the start of April of 1971, using the Rolling Stones' famous mobile unit. The backing track of Won't Get Fooled Again was recorded there before the band decided to relocate recording to Olympic at co-producer Glenn John's suggestion. On Glenn John's, who incidentally was the engineer on Beatles' Abbey Road and, of course, produced the Stones, Led Zeppelin, here's why he was used, according to Pete. very important in the sound although he was handed a, a very wonderful project on a plate really because Kit Lambert had already done some very good structural production work in New York we did all the recordings in New York first so we did all the songs and then then we went back to London and I gave Glenn who'd been rooting to have a go at it I gave him a chance and I said well let's try it you know and we did two or three tracks and they just sounded really great. I mean, the, 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 the recordings from the record plant sounded great too, because uh, we did, one, one or two of the tracks were actually produced by Felix Papalardi. Uh, we've got a version of Won't Get Fooled Again with Leslie West playing the most extraordinary guitar on it, which was done pre the version which The Who did, you know, it was done before it, but with the same synthesizer in the background. You know, <laughs> And speaking of those synthesizers, Pete began to experiment with synthesizers around this time, a musical addition that added to the forward-looking nature of the record in general. The celebrated looped intro to Baba O'Reilly, named after spiritual guru Mayor Baba and minimalist composer Terry Riley, particularly propelled the Who's music into the new decade, which was still coming down from the 60s. Who's Next didn't put an end to the Woodstock era, but it was one of the albums that audaciously carried rock and roll into the 19th 70s and the next age. Throughout the album, the synthesizers add texture to the tracks, but just as often, they serve as the center to many of the key songs. The album opener, Baba O'Reilly, and the eight-and-a-half-minute closing tune, Won't Get Fooled Again, are powered by them. Who historian Chris Charlesworth said of Baba O'Reilly, Pete didn't use his synthesizer simply as a solo keyboard that could make strange underwater noises, but as a rotating musical loop which underpinned the melody and added a sharp bite to the rhythm track. It was a bold move on the part of Townsend, who wanted the Who to break from their past. And an exciting move. The organ track actually came from a longer demo by Townsend, portions of which were later included on a Baba tribute album, I Am. It was edited down for the final recording. Townsend later said that this part had two or three thousand edits to it. Taking a look at each track individually, as Pete told a BBC Radio 1 interviewer in 1990, let's start with Baba O'Reilly. Barbara O'Reilly was intended to be an opening piece of music in the film because Barbara O'Reilly was one of the instrumental synthesizer pieces that I did as it was which was purely experimental it ran the original one ran for as long as a 10 inch reel ran it so I suppose it ran about 25 minutes or something and then I cut it up and started to turn it into a song you know with scissors I cut it into something and then Glyn Johns cut it again and uh got it closer and closer to something that started to feel like a four minute rock song and then we added drums and guitars and then I wrote this lyric you know and so this really quite you know definitive classic 70s rock song actually came from what was actually a very eclectic and uh, indulgent experiment in electronic music. Now, he references the movie in there. That's the Lifehouse movie that he had conceived. And these clips that I'm going to play from Pete in that interview are very, very heavily edited down because even he couldn't explain these concepts from the movie to the interviewer in 1990. 
which kind of illustrates how nobody got it at the time. As far as track two on the album, Bargain, here's what Pete had to say in that same interview. Bargain, it was about, a, you know, I suppose the price of life in a way, that, that, that you know, what we get when we live is an amazing bargain that uh, is worth dying for life. And uh, in the... Uh, the recording session, the great thing for me was just that out of the blue, Joe Walsh gave me a Gretsch, an orange Gretsch. I'd never owned a Gretsch. I thought Gretsches were for Chet Atkins fans. And uh, he sent me a little amplifier to go with it and a foot pedal to go with it to produce a particular kind of Neil Young sound. And uh, you can hear it clanging away on this. On to The Song Is Over, which is the fifth track on the album. Pete again explains to the BBC with great difficulty. Again, this is heavily edited. But he refers once again to the Lifehouse project that he'd let go. That's the closing song from the original story of, of, of Lifehouse. It tries to describe the atmosphere at the end of the story where the battle is over, really. There's been a great concert which has been interrupted by the enemy. We witnessed this concert, but as the enemy approaches the concert, there's this tremendous building tension because they, they're, they're coming to attack it because it's a, an unofficial entertainment. It's a, a rock and roll concert in a period when all entertainment is licensed, approved, censored, and has a real purpose. You know, it's living our lives for us. And so what was going on in this concert was definitely bad. And at the moment that the, the, the troops arrive and burst in, the band and the audience just disappear. They just completely disappear. Uh, they go somewhere else. The, the point I was trying to make is, is that we already occupy, we who know what rock and roll music is and what it does, already occupy a bit of rarefied, stratified space, which people who don't know, they can't be there. You know, they can't be in that space. And uh, the song is over is the song that the people left behind have to sing. You know, it's like they So the song's about aspiring to something that you don't understand, trying to reach up and understand, you know, what's, what's going on. I'm not entirely sure that Pete understood his concept himself on to the sixth track on the album getting in tune here's the story behind that from that same interview getting in tune is is, is, is just another song about music really and the power of music and what it does and how it works and trying to explain you know in a way like, like, I, I wrote several songs like that for possible inclusion in in the film to try to explain to the uninitiated what you know what music does okay whatever you say pete as far as going mobile... Going mobile was a song about the joys of, of, of this gypsy life that these people were living, that they were the only people in society who were truly free. And this was a song that was just played along with a, a, a bunch of guys in old cars and motorhomes and, and tractors and trailers and, you know, j just rushing from place to place to escape being caught, I suppose keeping on the move. And another true Who classic was the eighth track on the album, Behind Blue Eyes. Behind Blue Eyes, it's quite strange because, I mean, often you do write songs which are very personal when you don't realise that you're writing a personal song. But this song was written for the villain 
of the whole story to sing. It was a, there was a guy in this in the story called Jumbo who was you know the head of an evil organisation, like a, not necessarily an evil organisation, but certainly the head of a big organisation who suddenly realises that what he's doing is not very good. You know, so he kind of reaches a kind of an emotional crisis in his life, and he looks at himself in the mirror and uh, sings this song. He's, you know, it's a point at which, you know, the baddies are seen to be not quite so bad. They're just lost. You know, I know Roger, not just because he's got blue eyes, but Roger uh, feels very close to the song. This feeling that there's a, a good person possibly, but more importantly, there's a bad person. There's potential evil in everybody. And finally, the closing track won't get fooled again. At one point in the story, there's an offer made to the the the, the wild ones, the gypsies. They're offered a, a kind of amnesty if they accept the status quo. In other words, they're, they're offered, you know, they're, they're, you know, you come into the system, you be part of the system, you become systemized, you come onto the grid with us, you know, instead of running wild concerts and living this wild life, causing a threat to the way that we want to run society, uh, come in with us. You know, and we'll give you power in return. And the hero of the piece warns, don't be fooled, don't get taken in, you know, don't, it's just, you know, if I become a leader or if you become a leader, I'll just be as bad as everybody else. And, uh... It's, a, it's interesting, really, that the song has actually been taken up as in a kind of an anthemic sense, when really it's actually such a cautionary piece. God, can't get enough of that scream. New boss, same as the old boss. Now, onto the iconic cover photo of the four band members urinating on a giant stone monolith, which some have perceived as the Who pissing on their past. That would be overthinking it big time, according to Pete in this interview. It's a testament to how big 2001 was in everybody's mind at the time. You know, the obelisk. We were running around looking for a, for a, a potential cover around England and uh, with Ethan Russell, the photographer, and he spotted this thing and we turned back and, and he said, it looks like the monolith from 2001. And I said, well, if what you're asking me to do is to stand in front of the monolith from 2001, I... <laughs> You know, I'm not going to do it. I said, listen, I'll piss up against it. And that's it. You've got a choice. I'll piss up against it or we go and look for something else. He said, okay, we'll piss up against it. So we pissed up against it. And then the significance of it really is what a pathetic, really, <laughs> pathetic act of rebellion. Pissing up against this perfectly innocent concrete block. <laughs> At the time that Who's Next was being released, rock writer Dave Marsh wrote in Cream magazine that the band's new album, quote, is to the Who what the White Album must have been to the Beatles. The point being that in both cases, these were the studio follow-ups to brilliant concept LPs, Sgt. Peppers for the Beatles and Tommy for the Who. As far as Who's Next being the band's finest hour, this is what various people had to say about it, including the manager we heard from earlier, as well as journalist Dave Marsh and Who PR guy at the time, Keith Alvum. Who's Next is a great album because the Who were at the, the peak of their past. Daughtry's voice was just beginning to sort of reach its maximum sort of range and power and depth. Uh, Entwistle was a prodigious musical talent anyway. Moon was at his very best. Townsend was at his most arrogant, inspirational with his songwriting. To me, that's the best group of songs he ever had. There aren't any big misses. Uh, 
and there's some of the best things he ever wrote there. Um, there are ideas in the songs that are that are important ideas and that, that echo before and after for him. Upon its release, Who's Next would become their most successful album in the States. It was certified triple platinum and reached number four in a 41-week chart run. That repeated the peak of the Tommy album that preceded it. Who's Next peaked at number five in Canada. Reviewing for The Village Voice in 1971, Robert Criscow called Who's Next the best hard rock album in years and said that while the previous recordings were marred by a thin sound, the group now, quote, achieves the same resonant immediacy in the studio that it does live. Billy Walker from Sounds highlighted the songs Baba O'Reilly, My Wife, and the song is over and wrote, quote, After the unique brilliance of Tommy, something special had to be thought out, and the fact that they settled for a straightforward album rather than an extension of their rock opera says much for their courage and inventiveness, and also the fact that Lifehouse was a mess. Rolling Stone magazine's John Mendelson wrote that despite some amount of seriousness and artificiality, the album's brand of rock and roll is, quote, intelligently conceived, superbly performed, brilliantly produced and sometimes even exciting well thank you at the end of 1971 the record was voted album of the year in an annual poll of american critics published by the village voice townsend would write in his who i am autobiography that songs from the album quote were slow to become familiar and established and that the set was pathetically titled but he paid compliment to john's by adding that it was the first who material in a long time to be properly recorded in December 1971, Townsend had told Steve Turner in Beat Instrumental, quote, I'd always felt rock was capable of doing more than the three-minute, 15-second track approach. But the question now is, what can we do with this extended piece of time? Today, the Who's problem is that piece of time on the album and on stage has become so predictable. We feel we've had to find a new thread that maybe isn't a standard rock procedure, but that nevertheless has the same fundamental simplicity. My cause is to liberate the group from its own shackles. It must be so busy up in Pete's head. Here's how he replied in 1990 to that BBC interviewer when asked if he felt that the album actually has merit in spite of his own criticisms of it. Oh, no, it has fantastic merit. Yeah, it's a wonderful record. It's actually the, the probably the best record record that The Who ever made. But I think one of the reasons why it marks The Who's subsequent decline is, is that it was almost like life was giving me like a little tick-off, saying, you know, don't get too big for your boots, little rock and roll person. You can make good records but nothing else and uh, and I hated to feel that, that rock was limited you know so for me it was a personal disaster because I you know I really felt I was kind of going for broke with it in 2007 after decades of regular placings in the upper echelons of numerous all-time best album lists who's next was voted into the Grammy Hall of Fame after the release of Who's Next, Townsend tinkered with a couple more concepts before he settled on Quadrophenia, another rock opera that nearly equals Tommy in the Who's catalog. But Who's Next is the band at its best. Stripped of the ambitions, expectations, and pretensions they were becoming saddled with, they made an album of pure rock and roll power. There was a time when The Who was one of music's greatest and most important bands. Who's Next proves why. And that's why we're making it the latest inductee into the Drive Rock of Fame. I'm Kelly Parker.